If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and I am so excited to have one of my podcasting mentors and one of my fundraising mentors on the podcast today, and that's Tony Martinetti. Before I introduce him, though, I want to share with you that next month, I have a coaching group that we'll be launching that is designed for executive directors in their first 12 months. If you're new in the executive director position, I don't know what your first days or weeks were like, but I will share with you in my first permanent executive director position, one of the board co-chairs met me at the front door, handed me the keys, showed me where my office was, literally showed me where the restroom was, said, hey, that's about it. Give me a call if you need anything. And within an hour or two after that, a staff member walks up to me. I'm not even in this office that I just got shown. Walks up to me with, with his computer underneath his arm, slings his keys down and says, I can't take it anymore, and walks out with the organization's computer. So, so often as executive directors, we don't have ideal starts. But what we do need is the coaching and support necessary to be successful, whether or not we're getting that from our boards. So if you are feeling the need for some coaching, we're doing group coaching, which makes it a lot more affordable and also a lot more dynamic. So make sure you check that out at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. And now I am so excited to introduce one of my podcast and fundraising mentors, Tony Martinetti. I first became introduced to Tony through his podcast, Nonprofit Radio, and his was probably the first podcast of the nonprofit genre that I ever subscribed to. And listeners, this was a long time ago. I think this was 10 or more years ago. And this was so long ago that what I would do is I would download the MP3 file onto my computer. I would then transfer it to my Zune so that I could play it on my bus ride into work in the morning. Literally, 
that's how long ago I started listening to Tony's podcast. It was off the chain great, and it was also what inspired me to start a nonprofit podcast as well. And let me just quickly say, I was super lucky. I got to appear on his podcast about five or six years ago and felt incredibly lucky and fortunate to be able to. So Tony is not only an attorney, but he is also a planned giving guru. He has done planned giving professionally for longer than many people have even had a career. In some cases, probably longer than some of our listeners have been alive. He is a guru. He is amazing at this. And one of the things that he recently started is the Planned Giving Accelerator, which is a membership community that helps nonprofits start and grow their planned giving programs. And so when I heard he was doing this, I was like, Tony, we got to get you on the podcast here to talk about planned giving. So Tony, welcome to the podcast. Dolph, thank you so much. What a lovely, <laughs> touching introduction. Thank you very, very much. Well, well thank you. I, I will say that you really were. You were the first nonprofit podcast I listened to, downloaded it every week. It's an incredible podcast. But I know that in addition to being a planned giving guru, you're also obviously a fundraiser. And every fundraiser has a first ask. What was yours? Okay, Dolph, I hope you're ready for this because the story of my first ask was in seventh grade when I had a terrific crush on Lisa Maggio and I asked her to go steady at our seventh grade dance. I was there in my powder blue leisure suit with the contrasting thread on the lapels. My shirt was a fine Kiana polyester. My shoes, blue plastic from Buster Brown. If there had been a fire, I would not have burned. I would just smoke and melt. We were all there with that high gloss varnish on the gymnasium floor, poisoning everybody. I saved my last dance for Lisa. Lisa saved her last dance for Albert Moran. So I had the pain of watching that spectacle. When it was over, I went up to Lisa in the middle of the gymnasium dance floor. I got so close to her that I put my hands on her shoulders and I asked her, Lisa, would you go steady with me? With all her seventh grade charm and sweetness, she said, you are standing on my dress. Years later, Albert and Lisa married. Then sadly, they separated and divorced. As you said, I'm an attorney and I handled that divorce. I handled it for Albert and Lisa has been paying the price ever since. My asks have gotten much better since seventh grade and I want folks to know that I did not ask you to ask me that question so I could tell my Lisa Maggio first ask story, but you did. And that's the story of my very first ask. You asked, you got it. Oh my gosh, Tony, that is such a great first ask. Part of what I love about that in the fundraising world, we always say all the prospect can do is say no. <laughs> and uh, well, in this case, yes, there was vindication years later. We don't, I, I don't advocate that, you know, more like, six no's and you're halfway to a yes, right? So, you know, but don't be vindictive against your uh, the donors who, who put you off the first time. Don't do that. As you described your outfit, I have to share with you, I pictured my cousin David at his bar mitzvah. I think he had the exact same outfit. Yeah, well, I'm dating myself. Like you said, I've, I've been in plan giving maybe more than, longer than some folks listening have been alive since 1997. And, uh, you know, that was my elementary school days. So- I graduated from elementary school in 19, 
1976 elementary school, 1980 high school. So I'm dating myself, but you already did it for me. So that's okay. And a lot of your planned giving work, I know, has actually been around helping nonprofits set up their planned giving program structurally, but also in terms of how they're going to actually implement it. Yes, that's exclusively my work really is startup planned giving programs or, you know, very nascent. Like 18 months ago, we did an event and 14 people came, but we didn't know how to follow up. So here's the list of names that are 16 months old. That's really not a program either. That's just, that was a one-off event. So yeah, I've, I've always been starting programs. I worked at two colleges as a director of planned giving from 97 to 2003. I did that for six years. So I've been a frontline fundraiser, creating planned giving programs at those two colleges. And then in 2003, I moved to consulting and strictly, again, startup planned giving. And that's what the planned giving accelerator is all about too. Startup planned giving programs. You had mentioned those nonprofits that maybe reach out to you and say, we did an event 16, 18 months ago. We have these cold leads that we've not followed up with. What should we do? And I think that begs the question, what should nonprofits have in place before starting a planned giving program? I'd like to see at least five years of history. I'm looking for organizations that are at least five years old. The reason for that is, what are you asking folks to do when they include you in their will or their estate plan? You know, we always start with bequests and uh, charitable bequests. So I'm going to use the example of a will. When someone puts you in their will, they expect that your organization is going to live longer than they do. Well, in the first five years, there's a lot of zeal and passion and great feelings, but I like to see some history. You know, before we start asking people to put that organization in their will, you need to have been around the block uh, at least five years. So I like to see that. Um, You need to have individual donors. You know, if you're strictly fee-for-services, government contracts, foundation-funded, corporate-funded, you don't have any plan-giving prospects. You need to have individual donors. And I like to start planned giving with folks who are roughly 55 to 60 and over. So you need some folks in that age. Those are some of the things you need to have in place to get, to get started. And one of, the, one of the things I sometimes hear organizations say to me, and I'm not a plan giving expert, so I'd love to get your take on this, but I often say you should really talk to an expert about this. Sometimes I'll hear organizations say, well, we only have 12 major donors giving $5,000 or more, so we're really not prepared to start doing planned giving. And I'll, you know, I'll often say you should talk to an expert, but I bet you got some lower level donors that have assets they're not going to use when they pass away. Dolph, thank you. Yes. Bust that myth. One of the insidious myths of planned giving is that it's only for major donors. Absolutely not. Folks who are very modest, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to say small donors. doesn't mean they're small people. It means they give small amounts. If they're doing that consistently, and they've been doing it for several years, they are ideal planned giving prospects. So that is one of my top five myths of planned giving that keep people away, keep nonprofits out of planned giving. One of them is that it's only for your major donors. Not at all true. And I'll share with you, there are about four or five nonprofits in my will. And obviously I share with them that they were in my will. And I joked with them and I said, you know, I can be much more generous when I'm dead than right now. So there's a lot more coming in the future. Well, that's one of the advantages of, of a planned gift of that type. Again, a gift by will, there's no lifetime cost. Now, you've, you've done planned giving at an unusually young age and, and times five charities too. 
that congratulations you've got you've got more charities in your will than i do well well i'll share with you also you know we're we don't have any children and so i'm kind of like okay you know we can leave things to nieces and nephews who may or may not be all that involved in our lives in another 20 years or not right right so but you're you are pointing to one of the one of the reasons folks are drawn to planned giving once nonprofits start promoting it and that is that there is no lifetime cost to, uh, to that gift by will Right. And so you're an organization, you've been around five years or longer, and you've got some individual donors, you know, pretty strong individual donor base who's given more than one year. And you've got those dedicated donors that have given multiple years, even if it's smaller amounts. What are kind of some of the next things nonprofits should be thinking about in creating a planned giving program? And Dolph, that's exactly what we're, we're doing together in the planned giving accelerator that membership community you mentioned, which I thank you for. Well, next step is, you know, you got to, you got to get out there. You got to identify the right prospects. You got to have the right messages for the right prospects, timing it correctly, uh, recognition society, recognition societies for folks who give at different levels, whether at your organization, it might start at $50, it might start at 500 or a thousand. You have those different levels. Your plan giving donors deserve that same level of recognition, that same respect and, and thought. So you need to have the recognition society. Uh, you want to be talking to your board about planned giving. Boards, you start a new initiative, you're looking for board support, right? So I like to see 100% participation among the board, uh, regardless of age. So for board members, you know, I'm not, I, I don't care that they're 55 or 60 uh, and, and younger. All board members should have the organization, I think, in their will. When they leave the organization, if they've changed their minds years later, you know that that's fine. But at least at the time that they're on the board, we're looking for that 100% participation in, in wills. So, Tony, I love that because what a great, and it's admittedly, it's not something I thought about, but what a great way to come out of the box with your program. If you've got 15 board members to say, hey, we're launching this program with 17 people, our 15 board members and the two major donors we've already talked to. <laughs> Yes, yes. And then, you can, then you've got a, a cadre of folks you could go to for testimonials, do a pull quote on your webpage, do a pull quote in an email and a print piece, recognize them in your annual report the way you recognize other donors, whether print or digital annual report, doesn't matter. That could be a very good launching off spot. I do have to say that this is, this is why you're the plan giving guru. It really is. I use evangelist. Can I say, can I plan giving evangelist? Go to my LinkedIn. You'll see plan giving evangelist. Absolutely. And I'll make sure in the show notes, we don't say guru. In the show notes, we're going to say evangelist. So I right. will correct you. You don't my... have to cut this out. Don't, don't cut this part out. Keep this in. Don't worry. We're not going to cut it out. Yeah. Keep this in. We're having fun. You know, I, I just prefer evangelist. That's all. I'll definitely make sure I use that going forward. But one of my other questions as I recall, back when I was an executive director and there would be times that I would be teed up by a development staff member or, you know, maybe I just kind of knew I needed to do it to have that plan giving conversation with someone. Oftentimes, and we're talking people like in that prime target age range, 55 to 65 or 70. Oftentimes I talk to people and they would say, well, gosh, I don't even have a will. How, do you think that's very common where you're sitting down to talk about plan giving and it turns out the person doesn't have a plan at all? Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, I haven't run up against that personally too much. We do start marketing folks 55, roughly 16 over, but most of the folks that I'm having conversations with for clients are 70 plus, and they very rarely don't have wills by, by that age. But to your point, it is true that there are a lot of folks in the United States who should have wills, 
that don't. We should all have a will, certainly, if we have children, by the, by the time we have those children, because you, you got to cover guardianship issues. What happens to your children if, if anything should happen? But even before that, you know, you could die an untimely death and everybody's got something. It's much better to have a will than not. But yeah, the national statistic, I mean, you're right on, Dolph. The national statistic, I think, is like 55 or 60% of Americans don't have a will. I, th- I think it's more than half don't who, who ought to. And does that ever represent a barrier in the planned giving program because people have just not, sadly, thought that far in advance? Well, I would kind of turn that around. So if I was in, uh, if I was in your shoes as, as that uh, executive director, and by the way, I love that you have that experience and now, you know, consulting the same, you know, that the hybrid, you've been on both sides. I admire that. I would kind of turn that around and say, well, now, now you have a good reason to do it. We'd love for you to include us, please. Don't put us first. You know, if, if you have children, you, you know the person well enough by then, you know, if you've got children, you know, they come first. Family, this is something I do say often, family comes first. but how about using this as an opportunity to uh, to get that done? Because I'll bet it's been weighing on you. I'll bet it's something, you know, now, now we're, you know, depending on how well you know the person. Look, if it's a first meeting, you might not go to this step. But if you know the person pretty well, you might go so far as to say, I'll bet this has been weighing on your mind. Because you know you're supposed to have a will. Maybe use this as an opportunity. All right, so there's a little levity, a little whimsy, but you're making a serious point at the same time. Right. I've got another question, and this is one that I've sometimes struggled with. Kind of like you, I'm, I'm okay. I've always felt okay having that conversation with someone who's 65, 70, 75. I've struggled when the conversation is with someone who's 85 or 90 because it kind of feels almost opportunistic to me. How do I get past that, or should I get past that? Yeah, you should. They're ready. If, if they've been loving your organization for years, decades, probably by, by that age, look, they should have been asked when they were 65 or 70 or 75 or 80, but all right, the organization didn't do it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight your hypothetical. It's a natural extension of their giving. You know, they love the organization. And if you're genuine, sincere, it's not going to come across as opportunistic. If you're talking to the right folks or the right person, meaning they've they've loved your organization for a long time, they're okay with the idea. Right. Here's the next thing I'm really curious about. And the funny thing, I was going to ask you this question, and, and you've kind of already answered it, because I, I was going to ask you the question, how long after a nonprofit starts their planned giving program before they start to get commitments? And I love it, because you're sort of like, well, look, you've got commitments out of the box, because you've got 15 board members, so you have at least 15 commitments. But after after you've done the launch and you've got those initial commitments from board members and maybe some of your closest donors, how long before you really start to see traction beyond that? Well, that's going to depend how many prospects you have. Look, you know, if we're promoting planned giving to 100 folks, that's going to take a while, right, even beyond the board. Um, and, and I should say, you know, board is not necessarily the place you have to start. It, it's a good idea. Uh, and I, I do like to see that 100% participation, I'm not backing off that. But, you know, you could start more broadly and hold off your solicitation for the board until you have some, uh, some activity to report. And then, like in month three or maybe month six, then you've got a reason to report to the board and you make your board solicitation then en masse, okay? Um, or maybe you solicited a couple of board members earlier individually, but then you do the larger, the full board solicitation a few months or several months in. You need to be steady, consistent messaging. 
right? Digital and print. I like I like to do a lot of direct mail. I uh, I know direct mail has a has a high price to it, so that's a barrier for some folks. I understand that it's not the only way by any means, but it's it's a gold standard for folks in their seventies, eighties. They're opening their mail still. They're accustomed to having done that all their lives, and when it comes from a trusted, beloved organization, it's not junk mail. So you got to keep that consistency going, that steady messaging, and um, I can't say exactly when you'll peak. It may just be steady growth. Over, over several years, but you will grow. It will increase. The number of commitments will increase. It's funny. In all areas of fundraising, I say this to organizations all of the time, you'd be surprised if you can get consistent 10% growth every year, you'd be surprised what this looks like, you know, it compounds, what it looks like in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, aren't you wishing that your nonprofit had started planned giving or had started any initiative that you're not in 10 or 15, 20 years ago? Look where you'd be now. You'd probably have hundreds or maybe depending on the size of your organization, maybe you'd have a thousand folks in your plan giving recognition society. Maybe your revenue would be so much larger if you had been more consistent about your digital channels than, than you are. You know, so you don't want your successors looking back saying they wish you had started planned giving. Mm-hmm. Totally agree with you. I've got another kind of important question because a lot of our listeners are with smaller nonprofits, typically a budget of a million or less or a budget of two million or less. In a lot of cases, if they're lucky, they have one full-time development person who's responsible for everything, the events, the annual giving, you know, the combined federal campaign, grant writing, everything. And in some cases, they don't even have that one full-time development person. So for a smaller organization, what's reasonable in terms of starting your planned giving program and, you know, like in terms of number of asks, number of mailings, number of events you're doing, et cetera, what's reasonable? Delph, I know that profile very, very well because that's what Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio is all about. That's the, and we go way beyond planned giving and, and way beyond fundraising, but that's who the show, who I produce the show for, small and mid-sized nonprofits. And that's what Planned Giving Accelerator is all about. That's the exact profile, the community, the, the nonprofits, small and mid-sized that, that I've created Planned Giving Accelerator for. Um, you have to look at your own capacity. You know, where are you? Where are you starting from? What resources do you have? In Planned Giving Accelerator, I tell folks, I, I, I'm looking for them to spend about an hour a week on planned giving between what we're doing together and what you need to go back and do on your own. So four to five hours a month devoted to planned giving. Look, you know, in your first year, I'd say, you know, that size shop, I'd be getting out two campaigns, direct mail and or digital, more if you have the wherewithal, but at least two. Uh, there should be a board meeting in there, a board meeting solicitation. And then you have the important follow-up, follow-up to that board meeting, right? Any solicitation is worthless if you're not following up with the person. If you just let it hang on the, hang on the vine and shrivel away and die, they're going to think you're an amateur and you're going to be leaving a lot of money on the table. So same thing with the board. After you have that meeting, then you got to have the important follow-up. How's that going to get done? Who's it going to get done by? I'd say for a first year, you know, that's that's reasonable. Uh, recognition society, you know, but you don't have to put a lot of effort into a recognition society. It doesn't need fancy letterhead. It doesn't need branding. It, it needs a good identity. It needs a name. You don't have to have lapel pins you're spending money on or crystal obelisks that you're giving to, you know, it's not necessary. Do that in, <laughs> Dolph is laughing at the crystal obelisk, you know, do that in year 10 or something. You know, don't worry about that. It's just like any other fundraising. You got to be asking. The point of my Lisa Maggio story, you know, if 
If I hadn't asked her, I would never know whether she would go steady with me. And she ended up paying a price for not doing it. You know, you have to be asking. So get the asks out in whatever form. That's the, the crux of my advice for getting your plan giving started in year one, two, three. Get those asks out. Maybe for you, maybe it's just one-on-one -on -one asks. You know, maybe you don't have the wherewithal for digital. I'd be surprised in 2021 if that's true, but let's take a worst case scenario. If you're doing a lot of meetings, then when folks are roughly 55, 60 and over, and they've been consistent loyal donors, raise it with them. At least you're getting asks out in some form. Ask, ask. That's the key to success. You got to be out asking like any other fundraising. Tony, that's really reassuring because what I hear you say is if your organization is spending four to five hours a month on launching your plan, your program rather, you should expect that your program will get commitments and bear fruit. Yeah, absolutely. And look, the average charitable bequest in the U.S. is about $36,000. So you're not going to hit that every time, but People of very modest means, very small donors can be very generous. Anybody, almost anybody can afford $5,000 in a will. And that's obviously a way below average gift. Yes, you'll get commitments if you're asking the right folks and you're, and you're asking of the right folks. I'm so glad you emphasized that. When I was the development director, we had a monthly giving program that we called five for food and fuel. And it was people who would send in $5 a month that we would put toward an emergency assistance fund. And we had people who'd been a part of five for food and fuel for years, literally like, and, and you know, sometimes and these are the old days. So people would actually send checks in and you would see the check and you could tell that it was an older person. And those were some of our best prospects for them. $5 was actually a lot, but they often had a home and had other assets. They just wanted to make sure they were going to be okay throughout their retirement. Absolutely. Dolph. Uh, and I'll bet you a lot of those folks, I don't have to know who they are. I know a lot of them wish they could do more for you. They probably wish they could give you 50 for food and fuel, but for whatever reasons, objectively true or not, they feel that five is, is all they can do. So they're very good prospects for doing something more in their will. Yeah. I love that. That, that is phenomenal. Last kind of big question I've got for you around planned giving. Once a donor makes a commitment what should you be asking for from that donor? Well, before you ask anything, you want to say thank you. So you thank them genuinely, whether it's over the phone or when we get back to face-to-face -face meetings, if it's that, a sincere, heartfelt, warm, genuine thank you. Because what they've done is put your organization alongside their husband, wife, children, and grandchildren, alongside those dear, dear loved ones. There's a gift for you they take your work very, very seriously. They love your mission, your values, and they want those things to succeed. They want your work to continue for decades and generations to come. So you need to treat that with the sincerity and, and genuineness that it deserves. Um, and then you just, you welcome them to the recognition society. And I don't know that there's anything more you're asking. You know, even without asking, you're gonna see a lot of your plan giving donors increase their other giving. Why? they feel so much closer to you because they've done what I just described. They put you alongside their loved ones and they feel closer. And I'm not saying it happens in every case, but in lots of lots of cases, after someone has told an organization that I'm working with, that the organization is part of their will or other estate plan, 
you see their other giving rise. It's quite common. That's awesome. Well, Tony, I want to make sure I've got time for the off the map question. And I think I've got a good one for you. This is something I did not know about you until I started to prep for our recorded conversation today. And I was kind of surprised because, as I've already said, I, li- I feel like I know you. While you and I have only spoken maybe three or four times total, including this one in the last five or six years, I do feel like I know you because of the podcast. But I learned that once upon a time, you were responsible for the nuclear keys. Yes, yes. I had an ROTC scholarship to Carnegie Mellon University with the Air Force. So after I graduated, I owed them four years of service. I I served for five years in the Air Force. I was at Whiteman Air Force Base in Warrensburg, Missouri, which is now the B-2 base. And yes, I was a a missile launch officer. The uh, official title was missile combat crew commander. We were operating. We were the launch officers for Minuteman ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, We operated 10. Uh, We were in capsules underground. Yes, we had keys. And uh, in my off-duty hours, those keys uh, started my Toyota. Really? No, that's a joke. No. I'm sorry. I'm too, I'm too dry. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, no, separate keys, different keys. The keys have to stay down in the, in the launch control center underground. And if you ever want, you know, I, if you go on my YouTube channel, you can see I have a tour of a launch control center at, White, at Whiteman Air Force Base because there's one that's no longer operational, obviously, but uh, it's, it's a museum. And I toured through it and I do a voiceover tour for like 10 minutes or so of a Minuteman LCC, Launch Control Center. I have to say it's super cool, but it also gives me the sense that you're probably um, a very trusted and trustworthy person because I imagine they don't really share those keys with many people. Yeah, you got to be, you got to have your wits about you. Yeah, uh, there were some, <laughs> there were some folks who, uh, no, they weren't questionable. You know, it, it was, it was a lot of camaraderie. So you got to know people very well. Yeah, we were all, uh, you can at least say that I'm stable. Trusted you're being generous, but I'm stable. <laughs> I was going to say, I think we could say a lot more than that about you. A lot of good stuff. But listeners, if you were starting to think about your planned giving program, if you're starting to think, hey, we might have four or five hours a month to start a planned giving program, especially if it might bring in in five or 10 years, $36,000 on average per gift. If you're starting to think that might be a good gift for you to give to your next development director or executive director who follows you, I suggest that you go to plannedgivingaccelerator.com. And at that website, you can learn more about Tony's membership community. Just so you're aware, the way this works is they start new cohort groups quarterly. And so in April of 2021 will be when the next cohort group launches. So that's about six weeks away. If you're interested, you really need to go to plannedgivingaccelerator.com, check it out, and reach out to Tony if you want to be a part of that group. Also, I'm always remiss if I don't say, obviously, you listen to podcasts, you're listening to this. Please check out Tony Martinetti's podcast. It's called Nonprofit Radio. It is, I would be willing to bet, probably the oldest continuously running nonprofit podcast in the country. So it's definitely worth your while to check it out. And the last thing I just want to make sure that you're aware is I think there's 
um, a plan giving guide that Tony will give you for free. And there's a text that you've got to send. And Tony, I'm sorry, I don't remember the text number. Dolph, first, thank you for that very gracious information you're sharing with your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Very well said, all. Uh, yes, I have a free how-to guide, uh, Unleash the Power of Planned Giving at Your Nonprofit. You can get it very simply. Text the word GUIDE to 56525. GUIDE to 56525. And, and thank you again, Dolph. Real pleasure being on the show with you. Tony, thank you again for being on. And listeners, if you are somewhere, maybe gardening or doing something else, and you can't write down Tony's URL, plannedgivingaccelerator.com, go to our show notes at successfulnonprofits.com. We're going to link everything you need to know about Tony right there at our show notes. And we might even try to find that YouTube video of him giving the tour so that we can share that with you as well. And don't forget, listeners, if you are new in an executive director job, whether you're a first-time executive director or a third-time executive director, and you think some support and group coaching might be beneficial for you, also go to SuccessfulNonprofits.com and check out our next group coaching for new executive directors that will launch in March. Finally, if you found this episode helpful, there are two that I want you to think about listening to. The first is episode 83, The Major Gifts Playbook with Doug Barker. And the second is episode 157, Generosity Postmortem Legacy Giving with Lori Crancer. Both of those will be super helpful, and I'd be willing to bet that both of those will make you want to participate in Tony's Planned Giving Accelerator even more. That's our show for this week. I hope you've gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And you know, I always want to share with you I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. And neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. I would never suggest that you or anyone else get detailed professional, legal, tax, or accounting advice from a podcast. If that's what you think you need, please seek out a licensed, competent professional that specializes in exactly what you need. If you're not sure who you might talk to, talk to some of your colleagues, reach out to me. I might know somebody, but please get the professional legal tax and accounting advice that you need.